everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. I am so excited to share this episode with you. I hear from everyone. I know how much we all love to hear from producers. Well, this week, it is legendary producer Ron Nevison. And I feel comfortable saying that. If you ask me, Ron's ear, what he produced in the 80s, defined the pinnacle of what pop rock could sound like during that era. And some of the big names he worked with at that time include Hart on their huge rebound, their huge comeback albums, Survivor, Jefferson Starship, Kiss, Crazy Nights, Ozzy Osbourne, Ultimate Sin. Well, his career goes way back before that. In fact, his first big credit, if you can believe it, is The Who's Quadrophenia. After that, he goes on to work with Led Zeppelin on Physical Graffiti, and then it just never ends. I mean, I had to write down some of the names so I wouldn't forget. We talk about so many of them in here, everyone I've already mentioned, as well as, of course, UFO, The Babies. We talk about John Waite. He's got some strong feelings about John Waite in here. He worked on the first couple Bad Company albums. Thin Lizzy, uh, Chicago. He produced Look Away. I've never liked that song, but it was huge, and he produced it. There's Eddie Money. There's some Rex Smith. There's some John Wetton of Asia in here. There's Meatloaf. There's Vince Neil. There's Damn Yankees. There's Europe. There's Bad English. It just goes on and on and on. There is so much gold in here. In fact, we really lucked out because he's actually in the process of writing his autobiography. I didn't know that. And so the stories must have been top of mind. They just keep coming fast and loose. I wanted to kick this interview off with... Find Your Way Back from Jefferson Starship. People forget, and he and I talk about this, prior to We Built This City, Jefferson Starship was a decent rock band. They put out some great songs like Jane, Find Your Way Back, Laying It on the Line. I want to kick it off just as a reminder of how good Ron Nevison could be. What a life. I think you will love this. He called me from his home in the Columbia River Gorge in Washington State. This one's going to be tough. I got to be honest, because every album you've worked on deserves its own hour. I try to keep these to about an hour, but you've done so much. You just tell me if I'm bothering you or you got to go or you're over it or whatever. Okay. Right. Uh, If I say next, you know that, (laughs) you know, I'm over it. Okay. Okay. Next. (laughs) Good. I like that. Okay. Well, I feel a little bit like we should start out by talking about the recent passing of Paul Raymond. You were instrumental in making UFO the band that they were and giving them the sort of street cred that they still have today. I imagine you worked closely with him. Were you still in touch with him or did you have any, did someone alert you, I assume, or did you read it like the rest of us? No, no, I wasn't in touch with him. Uh, I haven't been in touch with any of the UFO guys for many years, although uh, I did, it's been about six or eight, maybe 10 years. Uh, I went to a show that they did in Portland 
and that's the last time I, I sometimes I keep in touch with people and sometimes I don't. But a good friend of mine, Freddie Salem, who was uh, one of the, the guitar players from the Outlaws uh, that uh, I keep in touch with all the time, uh, sent me a Billboard article the day that Paul died. Uh, he sent me a news flash kind of thing. Okay. I mean, I feel like UFO, <laughs> maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I came to understand or be more aware of UFO through Eddie Trunk and how incessantly he is about sort of saying, <laughs> how, yeah, yeah, saying how great the Strangers in the Night live album is. And maybe 15 oh. years ago, before that metal show and all the things that he does now, I thought, I got to... I guess I got to go listen to UFO. And so I did. And that's where I sort of learned. Are you, do you find that it's people like Eddie who maybe are keeping the UFO spirit alive? Or am I just thinking about my own experience here? Well, you know, it's very interesting, John, because yeah, I mean, UFO fans come out of the closet all of the time, <laughs> uh, much more than uh, some of the other bands that I've done like hard or, you know, I'm, I'm much, I hear from UFO fans and a lot of the media people, uh, like Trunk, but yeah, are big UFO fans. And UFO really was the greatness of Michael Schenker. Uh, the, the, the rest of the band were really good players. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, Phil Mogg was not the world's greatest vocalist. <laughs> uh, and Paul Raymond, bless his heart, was a wonderful uh, kind of um, musician, a keyboard player and guitar player, filled in great in that spot. Andy Parker, great. Pete Way, and, and uh, you know, just a great personality. Not so great bass player. Mm. But, and he's now uh, gone. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, when you look back at UFO, the greatness of UFO was Michael Schenker. And, um, you know, my issues with Michael Schenker, um, uh, when I came to the project, I, I did some homework and listened to the three or albums they had done before, uh, before Lights Out, uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, the uh, um, oh gosh, what's their producer? Uh, he was the bass player, I think, in Ten Years After, Leo Lyons, and they were really good albums. But they left me, uh, you know, they they they, were, they all sounded exactly the same to me at that point. And uh, I wanted this to be a friendlier album, mm -hmm. not pop. They were never going to be pop. But uh, we had a ballad on Lights Out called uh, uh, Cry, Try Me. I think it was called Try Me. Yeah, great tune. It got some, uh, you know, uh, notice in the States. And a classic song, Love to Love, as well as Lights Out. They were, they were amazing yeah. things. But 
the thing I realized early on with uh, UFO is that Shanker was writing these anthemy pieces of music, but he didn't think like a singer or like a lyricist. He thought like a guitar player. They didn't write together. Mm. In fact, you know, he was German. They were English. They were in two separate camps. Right. And he didn't, he didn't sit down. Hey guys, let's write. He would go on this cassette player and work out these anthems. The band then had to figure out where to put a verse. Makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) And often it took a long time. I came in and I helped arrange his anthems and put them into some kind of context. And the biggest, I guess the biggest problem I had with Phil Mogg was that he didn't write the lyrics till the, till he had to at the end of the album. And I wouldn't even know what the fucking song was about. <laughs> Here I am, the producer. Oh, I love it. And, and, yeah. so, and so that was always a, a bone of contention. In the end, he came up with very clever lyrics, and it just took him a long time. Well, hey, hell, Jim Steinman takes a long time to write songs, too. But, uh, you know, that was the, the, uh, the problems, if you want to call them problems, with getting UFO on the map. And, of course, when I heard something like Love to Love, and, uh, and then they, they dropped this thing on me. Hey, uh, we want to do, we wanna do a, a, a cover of this old love song, a bread song. Or yeah. Alone Again, Alone Again R. And I, I love that song. I come from that, that era. up to uh okay i need some strings and horns Mm. and i had just done an album with uh flo and eddie and at the record plant in los angeles and uh, they wanted to get some orchestrations on on their album and uh, a a guy came recommended to me uh that it work with alice cooper and i went well yeah here's a guy that can rock out and i need somebody that has that is kind of has that rock sensibility and not all sweetening. Mm-hmm. And his name was Alan McMillan, and I flew him to Los Angeles uh, to work with uh, Flo and Eddie. And uh, I, I, fl- I think I flew him to England for, for this. If not, he did the obsession stuff for me. Right. But I had been working with Alan. I'd have to check back. It's so long ago now that uh, 1977. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 77. But anyway, yeah, the fact that... Um, uh, and hiring an orchestra in London was a lot cheaper than it was in L.A., too, as far as budget goes. Oh, interesting. And so, and besides, the the, the guy that was the uh, head, the guy that was the conductor of the orchestra, he also scored Coke, which was great. Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect for everybody. <laughs> that, worked, that worked out nicely, you know. And I actually stayed in London the whole time for the lights out. I mixed it in London, too. Hmm. And um, okay. and then went on to do uh, Obsession in L.A. and then went on tour with them and, and did Strangers in the Night. 
Yeah. Do you, would you say, this might be a tricky question. If it is, tell me not to ask it, but would you say that Michael Shaker might be the best guitarist that you've worked with? Well, you know, that's so difficult to say. Is it? He's definitely, uh, you know, because there's, there's to the technical great guitar players, I think technically Key Marcello might have even been better Mm. than him. Mm. Uh, uh, From Europe, there's some stunning guitar solos on that record. as a writer, technical genius, there weren't, there aren't many that, that beat Schenker. There's mm, not many. Yeah, that's what I think. Jimmy, Jimmy Page wasn't as technical. He's a great player and a genius writer. It's really hard to, to, you know, Eric Clapton, uh, you know, I recorded Eric and worked for him and helped him build a studio at his house and lived at his house for a while. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Uh, well, I was his sound man for Dirk and the Dominoes, so it just depends how far you want to go back. Oh man! In, in, in 1970. <laughs> well, let me briefly let me briefly say that you know I started in this uh, sound business by by uh, I was a singer, but not doing so well. Oh. And um, I was working at a a store called the 13th Street Conspiracy in Philadelphia, selling bell bottoms. And the owner, the owner of that store, Ivan, and I talked about doing a concert, about promoting a concert. We couldn't do it in Philly because Electric Factory Concerts had a kind of territory locked up. Mm. So we picked Allentown, which is about 60 miles north of Philly. And uh, the agreement was he would put up the money for the concert and I would do all the work. So I did all the legwork, drove up there, did the bought the radio spots, did the promotion, put posters out, all that stuff. Hired a sound company, which was part of the rider from the agent. And uh, we broke even, mm. make a long story short. But I did make friends with the guy, Dave Hadler, that owned the sound company. And he hired me in 1968. And I spent the next three years going on the road doing major artists and worked my way up into a, a sound mixer on the road. Wow. And I was doing tours with Jefferson Airplane and Traffic and Eric Clapton. And, that makes uh, sense. Joe Cocker, Joe Cocker, Mad Dogs and Englishmen. You were on that too? Yeah, I was the sound man for that tour. Oh man, wow. I need some more love
and that was 1970. And uh, 15 years later, I get a call to produce his album. Yeah. Uh, so it's crazy. So, but just to give you some context, that I started out uh, as a sound a sound man, and I got my kind of break when I was riding in a car with uh, Chris Blackwell, who, mm-hmm. the owner of Island Island and Island Studios. He had a studio in London, and I told him I was tired of being on the road. I, said, you know, and he said, "What do you want to do?" I said. You know, I want to get in the studio. I want to take what I've learned in the performance arts and apply it. And he said, come come to London, work for me. So I did. Jeez. And uh, that was 1970. And uh, by three years later, I was I was doing quadrophenia for The Who. Yeah. And physical graffiti for Led Zeppelin and Bad Company. And... Oh, boy. I've been trying to decide how I want to tackle this interview because every name you're throwing down, like I said, deserves its own conversation. And what I'm thinking I might do is package artists into like a section. Like we'll have the heart section and the Jefferson Starship section as opposed to like going album by album through the entire thing. What you could do is read my book. You have a book? I don't think I even knew this. I, I am writing it as we speak oh. with a writer named a writer named Dan Hopheins. And we go. Uh, it's uh, the outline of the book is finished. The proposal for the book is already 140 pages. Oh. And it, it, you know, depending on what the publisher says, I I kind of have a deal, but we're we're shopping it still to see if I can get better that deal. And it could maybe come in a couple of parts. It just depends what the publisher thinks. Oh. Uh, and uh, because it's a lot of a lot of stuff, you know, right now, the book starts with, you know, my my early life and and what I just described to you, the transition from sound man to engineer to producer all the way up to to kind of the end of the century up to Leonard Skinner in 1999. And the book stops there at the moment. Let me start with the ones that I'm most curious about, and then we'll dive into some of the littler ones. Sure. I really got to know about Heart. 1985 self-titled album comes out, and it changes everything for them. And my impression is that they today sort of scoff at that period of their career a little bit. Like they, maybe they feel as if they sold out, you know, they, they cashed in on their looks as they deserve to. But those hits on Heart and Bad Animals are, in my opinion, among the greatest 80s rock pop hits available. Nothing at all is one of my favorite songs ever. What were the conversations like for you going into this? And do you sense that, that the girls uh, are a little squeamish? I wish the girls felt like you. Yeah. Uh, If you back up a little bit in in the late 70s, they came out of the box, what we call out of the box, Mm-hmm. with one of the biggest albums, Dreamboat Annie, of the late 70s. Maybe only the only bigger album at that time was maybe Boston. Yeah. And uh, it was a... Ann Wilson was this chick that could sing Zeppelin, and she had these ballads like Dog and Butterfly. It was a great balance in that band. We all loved them for that. We loved that she could shred, that she was... And, and cute little Nancy dancing around on acoustic guitar singing the occasional song. It just had all of the elements. Uh, well, you know, what happened to them uh, happens to artists. Uh, they, they, their their uh, boyfriends were the drummer and 
and the and the guitar player in, in Hart. Uh, and the second guitar player, Howard Lee, stayed with them. But the main guitar player, whose name escapes me right the second, wrote all of those riffy things, down, 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 and Barracuda, and Crazy on You, and, and the, the, the stuff that got them there. By 1982 or so, they did an album with, called Passion Works that was just too fluffy for Epic. Epic dropped them, and here's where their career changed. Don Grierson, uh, bless his heart, who just passed recently too, he was the head of A&R for Capital, and he said, I will sign you if you mutually agree on the producer and the songs. And they had a new manager, they had a new record company, and they had to do that. They, they, they had no choice, or they couldn't have the record deal. Oh. Uh, I got a call from Michael Lippman, my manager, and said, hey, Hart is interested in you going up and talking to them about doing a couple of songs. Initially, I was just talking to them about doing a couple of ballads. I just had big success with Survivor. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the radio and the year before. And um, so uh, I went up to Seattle, had a great meeting with them and got a call uh, within a couple of days that, Hey, they love the meeting and they want you to do the whole album. So I I go up to Don Grierson's office and we talk about it. And uh, he had a song called what about love Mm. and he had nothing at all. Yeah. Um, My manager handed me this cassette with these dreams on it. Mm-hmm. And also on that cassette was We Built This City, which I hated. That's Martin Page. I hated that song. <laughs> right, Martin yeah. Page and Bernie Taupin. So I thought these dreams would be great for Nancy, and of course it ended up being a number, Could number there have one. Been a, I'm sorry, I'm talking over you. I'm sorry I interrupted. That's right. Could there have been, I'm hung up on this now, could there have been a possibility that Hart would have recorded We uh, Built This City instead of Starship? Not a fucking chance. <laughs> I wondered if you were going to say, like, no. yeah, if they liked that oh, song, they would have oh, done no, it. No, oh, no, okay. oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no. I think it ruined their rock credibility, Starship. Now, yeah. I had done three albums with them, with songs like Jane and Find Your Way Back. And, yep. You know, and uh, and they, uh, I introduced them to Peter Wolf. Uh. They decided to go, well, he was my keyboard guy, you know. He was my keyboard guy on... Uh, on heart too. Yeah, I know. I thought that might have been the connection. But as a producer, uh, he had no idea. Of, he was Austrian. He had no idea of, of of the importance of of rock history, and the importance of the Starship fans, and as far as they go back. And uh, you know, you just don't do a song like that. Anyway, uh, we're getting off track with Peter Wolf. No, this is but, great. Um, but uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I brought What About Love up there to heart, and uh, they, they hated the demo. Mm. And I said, look, let's work it up. Let's learn the chords. Think of it as notes on a paper. And if, if you don't like it, we won't do it. <laughs> Lying a little bit. <laughs> but um, uh, because I knew that they would, I knew it was a great song, perfect yeah. for them. You've been hiding, never letting it show, always trying to keep it under control. 
you know, another song called If Looks Could Kill, I stole right off of Don's desk. It was it was headed for Tina Turner, who was a big capital act in that. So I stole that from her. And that was a, a wimpy little thing that I turned into a rock. Nice. A really cool rock tune. Well, can, can I ask you one question fun. about What About Love? I'm sorry. I, uh, lyrically, lyrically yeah, let me finish, man. Yeah, sorry. Lyrically, sorry. Uh, 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 if looks could kill, you know, if looks could kill, you'd be lying on the floor. You'd be mm-hmm. begging me, please, baby, don't hurt me anymore. I just thought that that was great imagery for Ann Wilson, you know. And so, uh, so that that worked out. I don't think they ever listened to demos and had to kind of make them their own. Yeah. So when when somebody was singing "What About Love" really wimpily, like "What About Love," <laughs> you know, and Anne goes, "Oh, revolt!" You know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, and I, you know, and I just said, "Look, let, let's just you know, just play the tunes and let's make them try to make them part." And if we can't, we'll, we'll move on. Mm-hmm. So that's how those tunes happen. Okay. Um, yeah, let me ask you a question about What About Love? Because it was originally done by a group called Toronto. You probably know this. And um, I, I had a couple members of Toronto on here years ago. And that song mm-hmm. actually caused some issues with them. Because uh, the woman who wrote it, Sharon, I'm blanking your last name. Uh, anyway, she, I think, was the keyboard player. She got songwriting credit. The other people felt like they contributed to that song, but they didn't get any credit. Therefore, they didn't capitalize when Hart went big with it. And uh, Ann Wilson told Holly Woods, the lead singer of Toronto, that she was really bummed out to hear that because she said, you know, I based my vocal performance on your vocal performance of that song. That's what she was told. Well, look, firstly, firstly, uh, this is the first I've ever heard about it. It comes out of the woodwork that I wrote this and I wrote that. I'm not saying that they didn't. I had no, when uh, Don Grierson had me that song, it was a demo that I heard written by Jim Valance. And that is what I, I remember. Sure. And, uh, but look, I, I've been around a lot of bands and just because you wrote the bass part doesn't mean you wrote mm-hmm. the song. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people that claim things and I'm not saying this is, this is, Toronto, what Toronto is saying is not valid. I wasn't there. But, uh, you know, after the fact, it's really easy to say what you did. Yeah. But just like, uh, just like uh, you know, but you have to, you have to sit down as writers and, and work out ahead of time. You can't just expect things to happen. Nobody gives you anything. Right. You have to work out who wrote what and write it down and get it, get publishing and all of that stuff. Yeah, uh, I don't know what what happened with What About Love, but I, I was ha- I was happy to have it kick off sure. an album that eventually sold 10 million records. Yeah, it's a classic. I want to ask you specifically about Alone. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. I just want you to, to I want to clarify something here, yeah. because, you know, it could be that the, the version that that I played Ann Wilson, which she hated, mm-hmm. wasn't this girl's version. Yeah, it might be. I don't know for sure. It could have been. There was a, a previous version because she clearly didn't like the vocal treatment. I don't think she would tell her mm. unless she was just trying to shine her butt. Yeah, maybe. You know. 
Yeah. Anyway, you want to talk about a loan? That's fine. No, I, it's a, I mean, it's okay. I'm just, uh, I, I've gathered these little nuggets over the years from people and uh, that song in particular, I thought I would share the nugget that I had learned about it and it doesn't jive with what you know and that's perfectly fine because you're you're the guy and I'm not. So, Well, I, I, you know, I, I, would, I would look on the credits and see what the credits say. Yeah, the credits say Jim Valance and Sharon Alton and then her husband and got another guy named Alton who was also in the band at the time. Oh, but, okay. Oh, so uh, Valance is on there. Okay. Yeah, Valance co-wrote right, that song. Okay. He did for sure. Yep. Right. Okay. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you about Alone because there's that moment in Alone and I've always been curious where you think the verse is going to, or the chorus is going to come in on the second time around and it doesn't and instead Anne gives this just beautiful you know woo 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 I can't do it obviously Was that a happy accident? Was that planned? Well, I, I wish I could take credit for that. Oh. Uh, but but in fact, I was in love with this songwriting duo of Tom Kelly and, and Billy Steinware at Bird during Great. that period. Yeah. And um, I Want You So Bad and Alone both came from uh, a tape that they had sent me. And I was looking for songs for the Bad Animals uh, record. And they had written the demo like that. And I loved it. It was like, you know, it was the mm -hmm. second, it wasn't the first chorus, hmm. but it was, I think it was the, it could have been, you know, I don't remember. It's been so many years since I've listened to that. Okay. Uh, it could have been in the first chorus and I changed it to the second chorus. Mm. You know? It just amps up the drama. But she, she could do that though. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of like, ad lib thing that she did, uh, that's kind of her. Yeah. She does that great. So when I heard that on the demo, I thought, yeah, terrific. Awesome. But, um, you know, one one kind of uh, interesting tidbit on Alone was that when it came to do the high, how can I get you alone mm -hmm. harmony, neither of the girls could hit that harmony. Really? And so uh, I, I got Tom Kelly, the, the songwriter, mm -hmm. to come in and, and do that harmony. That's Tom doing that? A guy? Tom Kelly was, it was a falsetto. Tom Kelly was one of the premier background singers in Los Angeles during that time. Okay. That's what he did. It, they're backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, but, but not because uh, I, I, I wanted to bring in background singers, uh, you know, because they couldn't hit it. Wow. See, this is the gold. I love to hear this. I was going to bring this up later, but we'll do it now because... You're talking about vocal performances. Obviously, Kiss, Crazy Nights. I love that album. I don't care what anyone, any Kiss fan who has a problem with that album, I don't get it. Because it's great melodic rock of that period. Well, look, people had a problem when Dylan put on an electric guitar. You have this certain element of people that like it, like things the way they are. Yeah. And we were in the Bon Jovi. We were in this 
in this hunt to take this further. And uh, but keyboards were a part of the late 80s sound. And, you know, some of the hardcore Kiss fans didn't like that. Yeah. I just went to Portland and saw the band uh, on their tour, on their current tour, and had a nice chat with Paul backstage. And I said to him that I would like to remix Crazy Nights. Mm. I think I could bring it with today's, uh, you know, uh, 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 gadgets. I thought I could bring it to life more. I could make it bring the guitars up. And, you know, the reasons why uh, it sounds like it, like it does don't exist today. Yeah. You know, the reasons I mixed it for rock radio and for, for you know, they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he said he would talk to Universal and talk to Doc McGee and get back to me. He hasn't, but it's a, it's a, I'm going to kind of like follow up, follow yeah. up on that. So, yeah. So any questions you want to ask me about that? Fine. So specifically, I, you know, I was listening to that. I've heard it a million times, but listening to it again, just now getting ready to talk to you, I was really struck with Gene's vocal performance in Thief in the Night because let's face it, Gene is not known as being a great vocalist, but he hits some, he hits some notes in this song that are great. And I thought you talking about, uh, Tom Kelly. And I'm thinking, is that actually Gene or did Ron yeah. you know, turn some knob somehow to make this happen? How did it, how did it happen? talking about 1987 something like that yeah 87 i think yeah it's you know 87 or 88 and uh there wasn't really uh the um, the technology uh there were harmonizers but they, they they you know you could tell using something like that there wasn't the sophisticated software that i use all the time now to change notes on people uh, uh and um yeah didn't have it so uh, having not listened to Thief in the Night for many years, I, I really don't know. Uh, okay. uh, and people have come at people have come at me with there was a couple of songs that I left off, and you know it's entirely possible that uh, um, a, a lot of times we'll record when we do an album with any band. I'll record an extra song or two uh, just in case uh, one of them doesn't, you know. Uh, pan out the way I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's entirely possible there's there's stuff laying around uh, the Crazy Night sessions. Mm-hmm. So what do you tell Gene? What you know, you're there. He's in the booth singing, 
take after take on his songs on here. What what kind of advice does Ron Nevison give Gene in that moment to say, no, Gene, we need you to, to hit this note or we got to take it up a notch or that was great one more time? I think that, you know, Gene, if you're not seeing it high enough, grab your balls <laughs> while you're hitting the note and, and try to squeeze that note out. Oh, you know? that's great. <laughs> that, that's probably it. it. Now, you know, what I usually do with, with singers is uh, I'll do um, as many takes as I think I need. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do what we call a comp, which is I'll take a, do a composite vocal. I'll take a little bit from each take. And a lot of it usually comes from the first take because it's the, the, the one that's, that's t- that takes chances, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I usually do that with vocals. So I was in the mode of digital recording during their time. Uh, during the analog days, which is like pre, like in the seventies for sure, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't like to uh, to do a comp because I didn't like to go a whole generation on the vocal because you could tell quality wise would go down. Interesting. Nowadays, rock singers want you to have that. They want to have it distorted. They want to have it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> we were in a different place in those days. So I can only think that, yeah, I just worked really hard on the vocals for for both Gene and Paul. Mm. And I don't remember that particular song. but Okay, that's okay. Uh, It was just really striking me right this minute. Can you tell me your, tell me a story. Tell me a story about that period with Kiss and that album. Anything come Mm. to mind? Gene sent me like 25 songs, 30 songs. Mm-hmm. And Paul sent me like six. Uh-huh. Uh, in other words, Paul selected the songs that he sent me. He sent me the, the, the more of the, the ones he wanted to do. And Gene just sent me everything that he had been doing. Got it. Two, it shows you they have two different mindsets. You know, Gene, one of the songs Gene sent me was, I want to put a log in your fireplace. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's so, so that's Gene. the kind of songs I was getting from Gene. Yeah. Uh, but as far as working with them, Eric Carr was great to work with, and Bruce Kulick was great. I had, you know, and that was a very short period. Eric, of course, passed away, and Bruce didn't stay with the band too long. They were in a period where they had taken their makeup off. They put their makeup back on, as you know. They... You know, uh, uh, they were trying to keep the brand alive and everybody stuck with them, just like Trump voters. Mm. You know, they all stuck with them. You know, I did in the end get a little bit of negative feedback from some of the hardcore KISS people. I'm glad to hear you're a hardcore KISS person and you weren't offended by Crazy Night. Not at all. I love it. It's fun. I wanted to remix the album uh, just because, not, not to please those KISS fans, but to please myself, mm-hmm. to do it because I thought I could have done a better job knowing what we know now and with the technology we have today. I'm imagining someone like you, you may, you must be up at night thinking about obsessing over thoughts like that for everybody, you know? No. I mean, you've done oh, so no. many things. No, no. no. You're, you're content. You're happy. No, I, there's some, there, there, no, I'm never happy with anything. Oh. <laughs> but I don't, I don't obsess over it. That's okay. what you said. Okay. Now, I, 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 there's some albums I, I, I listen back to uh, that I, you know, sometimes I think like, what was I thinking? And sometimes I, th- I think that sounds fucking amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's somewhere, usually it's somewhere in between that, that I find a comfort zone. Yeah. You know, I've done a okay. you know, hundred albums. You, you can't, can't, 
can't win them all. Let's talk about Jefferson Starship because first and foremost, Jane laying it on the line and um, find your way back. Three of the greatest track ones ever. They announced that this band is a certain kind of band, which as you were alluding to earlier, they kind of were until, <laughs> until we built this city it kind of changed everything. Well, uh, you know, I would, I would have never, ever brought that to them. Yeah. But the band was always a kind of, they had three writers when I got a hold of them. And if you look at before that, if you look at, you know, Miracles and, and that kind of side of, of the Jefferson Airplane and Starship that started out, they were just held together by, you know, uh, uh, Craig Chiquizo wrote the songs that you like. Jane, Find Your Way Back, Laying It on the Line. Uh, the other side of it was Paul Kantner writing all these Jefferson Airplane kind of songs. And Pete Sears was right in the middle. Him and his wife, Jeanette, were writing the third kind of different songs. And it was very difficult doing an album that had three such different writers in the band. Yeah. The other thing is, uh, before CDs came along, and certainly uh, Freedom at Point Zero was before CDs came along, uh, you can only get 20 minutes aside on an album. And they were doing like seven minute songs, you know, <laughs> Pete had the song I love called Awakening, you know, that mm -hmm. uh, great guitar solo that Craig did. Uh, and so uh, I had to sit with the, the members of the band. And what I decided to do is <clears throat> I, I had them all write, what songs don't you want on the record? So I would get a consensus of what the songs they wanted on the record. It was a kind of blind thing, right? And that's how I determined who's, what songs got on the record. Mm, interesting. And even with that, you know, Paul Kantner wanted, to, want, wanted one more of his songs on the record and was willing to cut them down to like almost nothing, to edit them down. And I went like, you know, that's not going to work, man. Yeah. You know, so it was a tough thing to do an album like that. You know, you go back and you, and you listen to albums like Modern Times or Nuclear Furniture, and they're really, it's so obvious that you've got someone like Craig or Mickey singing these excellent rock songs that are very modern, very today, they're epic in scope. And then there's Paul's sort of, you know, hippie fever dream type songs that don't fit right. at all on these. And they, yeah. and they don't, they don't even sound very good in the eighties. Poor Paul, you know, you know, if Paul was not ever in the eighties, Paul stayed in the sixties the whole time. And, uh, he didn't even pass through the seventies. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah, he was, that was the airplane kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, um, and that was his thing. Where did grace, fall in all of this well grace was out of the band i got a call from my manager to go see starship they were looking for a producer and to go see santana both in the same day mm. and i remember a limo picking me up at uh, uh the airport in san francisco and taking me to sir and uh santana was rehearsing and i met all the guys and you know, but honestly, I always thought of Santana uh, uh, as Carlos Santana. Right. And even though he, they had good singers, they never looked very good. They sounded good. But the band was about Carlos. And it was about Carlos and his Latin heritage and, you know, all of that stuff. 
Right. And he was a great guitar player, but you know, I, I didn't rate him as high, honestly, as some of the other guitar players. I, I never got what Bill Graham said. He was the greatest ever and all of that. So I, I never got that. It wasn't a great meeting, but it wasn't a bad meeting. But when I went up, I went up from that SIR meeting up to Paul's house. He had this great house overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge. And they were all waiting for me. And uh, there was a new singer, Mickey Thomas, in the band. Grace had left the band. Marty Ballon had left. There was a new drummer, Ainsley Dunbar. It was a whole new thing. They had written some great tunes. And uh, there was no question in my mind which album I was going to go with. Jane was the first single out of that. By the time, like I mentioned, Nuclear Furniture, Grace is back. You know, she's singing on Laying It on the Line and stuff. And she sings that mannequin song, right. Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. Also, I did, a, I did a solo album with Grace called Software. Yeah, I forgot about that one. Peter Wolf and her wrote the tunes. and she, It was all machines. We used drum machines and, uh, and synthesizer and guitars and vocals. And it was fun. You know, somebody like Grace could do that. You know? Okay, so that that's my question. You mentioning this, it's clear that she, of the her and can't of all the you know they were a bunch of hippies. She obviously embraced modernism and technology to some degree. But did you notice any kind of sense of conflict within her of in terms of wanting to be more modern and saying nothing's going to stop us now, but still also having these hippie ideals like Paul did? Did you notice any of that? You know, nothing is going to stop us now, and. And uh, we built the city. We're both after I left the, yeah, true. the, the, the three albums. So I, I can't speak to that. I don't know what 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 possessed them, but certainly they went with uh, a, a local Marin producer that had had a lot of success with Whitney Houston. Uh, um, I was about to named Narda Michael Walden. There's certainly no rock credibility there. Right. I love Peter Wolf. Uh, as a great keyboard player, but he had no rock history. Mm-hmm. You know, everything that he did, he wanted to sound like Peter Gabriel. Mm. You know, he wanted to sound like whatever he was into at that time. Right. And that's not how you treat a band with a legacy. It takes more than talent just to produce something. You have to have continuity. You have to you have to run a thread through the band's history and try not to piss anybody off. Right. Try to keep those fans in and add new fans. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I did with Kiss. I tried to take them to to uh, with a song like Reason to Live that I thought would be a great smash hit. Out of touch with myself for so long. Now we're feeling so strong. Coming over me down the line. There's a lesson I've I'm not alone Well, 
You know, and I talked to Paul about that, and they said that, you know, the record company really didn't believe in Kiss as a radio band in those days. Right. They didn't push that song. Yeah, that's a shame. I never understand that. If you've got a song that you believe in, just let people hear it and let them decide for themselves. Right. But it didn't work for Kiss. It doesn't work for a lot of bands like that. Let's talk about Survivor for a minute. Sure. produced their first album, Survivor, with Dave Bickler, but then you come back later for Vital Signs and When Seconds Count, and by then Jimmy Jameson's in the band. Within the band at that time, were they happier? Was there a sense of levity now that Jimmy's there, or was there a sense of desperation, like we gotta make this work because we don't have Dave anymore? What was the vibe? Hmm. Well, it's not as easy as that, what you just said. You know, firstly, I left the project. They didn't produce that much of the first Survivor album. Oh. Uh, I had disagreements with the A&R guy. But right after that, I think that uh, Bickler lost his voice. Something happened with he lost his voice. Uh, I don't remember exactly what, what happened with that. Uh, but uh, I do remember getting in contact with them again. Mm-hmm. I got a call early 80s but uh, Survivor wants me to do a song for the Karate Kid mm-hmm. called Moment of Truth. And I thought I liked the song, and I, I flew to uh, Chicago. It's the first time I've met Jameson. And we recorded the song in Chicago and mixed that song, and it was on the, the hit film Karate Kid. Yep. And from there, uh, the next year or so, I got a call to come and do Vital Songs. Mm-hmm. So that was the chronology of that. And of course, at one second's count, that's a follow-up album. Yep. And of course, Vital Signs had three hit singles. High on You, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. Love that tune. Great songwriting duo. Yes. Jim Peterick and Frankie Sullivan, terrific writers. Yes. And uh, Jameson, uh, both Jameson and Bickler could, could, uh, could bring it. Knack with people with very powerful voices. Mickey Thomas, Jimmy Jameson, yeah. even uh, Ann Wilson. I mean, these guys have some of the biggest voices there is. Is there a trick to making these people sound even better than they normally do? Intimidation is ah. what usually works. Really? Like <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's that, it's that, it's that intimidation is not something you use unless you have to. Right. If you have to if you have to let you know somebody come back to you and say, 
I'm going to show you. And you say, uh-huh. yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. I'm waiting for you to show me. You know, <laughs> Robert Plant, you can't leave him out. Yeah. Uh, true, Roger true. Daltrey, yeah, uh, Paul Rogers. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, yeah I've I've uh, I've worked with a lot of great singers. So. Oh my gosh! Yeah, my mind was in the '80s and the last couple of people we talked yeah. about. But yeah, no question. Yeah. I mean, the greatest vocalists ever. And then I got to Meatloaf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back then, also a great vocalist. Hardly, you know? uh, uh, hardly. Well, you know what? I was going to bring it up later. Let's talk about Meatloaf. Sounds like that wasn't a great experience for you. No, it was. It was okay. a great experience. It, it was a difficult. Again, you got to look at the history a little bit. He had just done Bad Out of Hell 2. Right. With enormous success with uh, I Will Do Anything for Love, but I, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Steinman penned all of those songs. And, you know, it was a uh, kind of a hunchback of Notre Dame scenario. It was the ogre with the pretty girl. Mm-hmm. That was his concept for Bad Out of Hell. And it, it, it worked. It worked twice. But Alan Kovac, who was Pete Lowe's manager at the time, wanted to follow up this big hit with another album right away, and Steinman didn't want to. Not only did he not want to, he didn't hadn't written the songs yet. Mm-hmm. So I think that the record company and the management just went, well, we'll just find somebody else to write it. They didn't believe in this concept of let's wait till Steinman in a few years will do Bad Out of Hell 3. Yeah? So they got Diane Warren songs. They got a bunch of songs. They went in with little Steven Van Zandt. Love him. At, in New York. Yeah, from, from um, um, Springsteen's fame. Yeah. And they, they cut, cut a bunch of stuff. And in the end, they weren't happy with I, I don't know exactly why, but I got a call to come and pick it up from where Stephen left off. And when I got to New York, they were working in two studios at the same time. They had spent a million dollars and uh, I consolidated everything. I took it all and put it into one studio and brought in my guitar player that I use all the time, Tim Pierce from LA uh-huh. and Kenny Aronoff, a great drummer took up some tracks and redid it and repackaged it and finished it. It was um, a very big album, especially in Europe. Uh-huh. It was a kind of nearly platinum album here, but double platinum in Europe. So it ended up doing very well, but it probably shouldn't have been made. Yeah. They probably yeah. should have waited for Simon. It was tough getting vocals out of him only because he didn't have a very long day of singing. He could only sing a certain amount of time. And his pitch wasn't very good. And in those days, you didn't have software that could correct pitch. Right. So you had to kind of, you had to wait for it. Why was he on such time constraints? Just busy? No, his voice came out. Oh, his okay. voice, he can only sing for a certain amount of three hours or so. And, and his voice would give out, the quality would, you know, yeah. Okay. But it wasn't for lack of trying. He tried really hard. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like he didn't kind of, you know, 
What's he like to work with? Because he seems like he could be a real Jekyll and Hyde figure sometimes. One minute, just a soft, tender-hearted guy, and the next minute, angry or upset. No, I didn't find that at all with him. He was soft and tender-hearted the whole time. We went out together with his wife. We went to Yankees games. In fact, one time he, he sang the, the uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Mm. And um, he would sit in the back of the studio on his computer playing fantasy baseball. <laughs> right? I love that. And he, did, he, just, he just let me do it. Yeah. And so I had to spend a lot more time doing the vocals than I normally would do with people mm. to, get it, to get it in tune. Walk across the wild for you mountains if you want me to And walk across the fire for you Do anything you ask me to Now you have a reputation of being someone who's sort of reigniting or jump-starting certain people's career, but what do you think it is that people are calling you for? What is the Ron Nevison sound that they want when they call you? It's success that they're looking for. And, uh, you know, I had had a string. I, I was a Billboard's uh, top five producer of the year for straight years. For a rock group to have success, to have multi-platinum success in the 80s, you had to conform to the radio formats that were uh, available to you. And if you just wanted to stay on AOR radio, which is album-oriented radio, and just FM, you just didn't have the reach that you did when you went to uh, contemporary hit radio, which was CHR, which had a lot of AM stations in those days. I know that sounds kind of weird, but... And it was, a, it was a mixture. It wasn't just rock. So you had to fit into that format. And so a producer needed to know what songs would kind of... The kind of stuff that would fit into that format and you wanted to find songs for people that didn't compromise their art or lose fans for them. You know, just like what Starship did with We Built This City, I thought it totally ruined their career. Yeah. So I think that people were looking for success and they were looking for somebody, a producer that could, could bring them that and take them from say, a, a gold group to a platinum group or a multi-platinum group. But in order for you to do that, you had to have your ear very finely attuned to what was happening out there. What was that thing? When I listened to a lot of the music you did, especially during this period, the common denominator that I always come back to is that, I mean, let's be honest, you know, synthesizers are happening at that time, but you're incorporating those into the songs by great rock bands without making any of them lose their muscle. You're not wimpifying anyone. No one is turning into a wimp. Well, thanks. The fast answer is you do a rock ballad, a power ballad. Because you could still be a guitar band and even even in the old days, Kiss did best, right? They had a ballad, even in the day. Yeah. And sometimes you had to drag artists kicking and screaming onto the charts. Uh, you know, I'll never forget, uh, there was a song called Shot in the Dark that uh, <laughs> Ozzy's bass player wrote. And uh, they didn't want to do it. Ozzy and I talked them into doing it. And of course, it was a hit. 
And then Sharon said to me, well, where's the follow-up? I said, there isn't any. You wouldn't, uh-huh. you don't, let's, let's go back here. Remember you told, told me you didn't want that song on the record, right? <laughs> and, now, and now you understand. <laughs> and so there you go. Perfect. That was going to be my very next question. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, Granted, that's more the hard rock edge than somebody like, you know, Survivor or whatever. But such right. a great, tuneful song. Well, but, you know, Survivor was writing ballads. The search is over. It was a perfect, perfect ballad for them. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what ha- That's the story of uh, of Shot in the Dark is that they didn't think they wanted it. <laughs> That's right, so they did not want to do that song, and I told I, I talked them into it. Okay, just one then. Uh-huh. Okay, well, yeah. Well, what happens, you know, uh, <laughs> when I did uh, when I did these dreams with Heart, uh-huh. I had Nancy do two songs. Uh, I wanted to be able to follow that up, uh-huh. uh, and sh- and she had only been doing one song per record yeah. uh, up to that point, you know, yeah. and was the lead singer. There's no question that and. Wilson was the voice and the lead singer and the, the front man of, uh-huh. like, of heart, yeah. of heart. But, and Nancy, uh, uh, was the sidekick, let's yeah. say, you know, yeah. I never thought these dreams would be a number one single, no. uh, but, uh, uh, you gotta be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it works. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, you know, uh, Shot in the Dark, it's buried at the end of that album. And I don't remember, I remember seeing that video on Friday Night Videos back in the day, but there was never any follow up. I don't, you're right. I'd never thought of that before, but like, where's the next single? Yeah, I didn't have one. I didn't have (laughs) one. Great. Oh, that's great. Um, Okay, let me ask you, let's talk for a second about the babies. Sure, sure. I had Tony Brock on here, and he's such a nice man. I know. And they're one of these bands that I feel like, uh, I guess because they don't have one or two ubiquitous hits that like is a staple of... They have some great songs that did pretty well in the charts, but there's not that one or two that like everyone knows is them. They get kind of lost in the shuffle sometimes. You know what I mean? Maybe you disagree. Well, I, I do know what you. I do know what you mean. No, I don't. Do, I don't disagree. You know, um, I'm just grabbing a little coffee here. Go ahead. Um, coffee with John. <laughs> <laughs> coffee in the morning with John. Yeah. In, in the Columbia River Gorge. That's right. Let me tell you a little bit about the babies, please. UFO reached out to me. And that's what got me the attention of Chrysalis Records. Mm. And uh, after the Lights Out album, y- you know, uh, oh, we like what Ron did on that. We have this group called The Babies, and they had done an album with Bob Ezrin, and it hadn't done what they had hoped. It wasn't, it was a good album, but mm-hmm. it didn't reach the next level. Now, I have to tell you, at that time, Chrysalis Records was just starting out in Los Angeles. And they had a London base. Mm-hmm. The two two principals in Chrysalis were uh, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright. Uh, Chris Ellis, you get it? That's how they did Chrysalis. Oh, got it. Okay. Chris, Chris Ellis, Chrysalis, <laughs> right? They had been friends in college, and they started managing uh, 10 years after. I think that's how they started in the whole thing. And Jethro Tull. Mm. And they formed Chrysalis Records around that. Anyway, the babies were one of their signings. And uh, but at this point in '77, 
chrysalis uh, had no muscle in this country. They were an independent label that had independent distribution, which means that they weren't tied in to any of the big, like Columbia or RCA or any of the big machines. They couldn't get records out there, but they had a good front end. They had this guy, Billy Bass, who by front end, I mean promotion department. The whole staff was probably only 20 people, Mm. you know? Uh-huh. And so uh, the point I'm making is we had hits with the babies, but they, we weren't selling records because people were going into the stores yeah. and not finding the records. Right. So they'd go and they'd, they'd buy something else. So it wasn't until, uh, I think, right around Blondie. Chrysalis had Blondie and they had Benatar. Mm. Big, big, big success with them. Uh, and I didn't take advantage of that with the two albums I did with the babies. But getting back to the to the babies, I found a song called Isn't It Time. Mm, good one. Uh, John Waite did not like this song. <laughs> and he's a real prick. Is John he? Waite, really. Oh, yeah. Total prick. <laughs> no. And he tried to sabotage the song. John Wade has a really good ballad voice. You know, uh-huh. falling in love is the last thing I had on my mind. Holding you is a warmth that I thought I could never find. But when it came to the chorus, he, he couldn't sing it or he wouldn't sing it. You know, he said he was trying. I'm not sure he was. Wow. So I got these girls to come in and sing the chorus. Really? They became the Bay Bet. <laughs> I was almost ready to toss the song. And they came in. And in the end, if you listen to that song, John Wade doesn't sing in the chorus except the answer. They go, Laying down at the time to Wagner singing, falling in love will be your mistake. And he goes, Isn't it time? You know? Yes. It worked. It worked. Wow. It was a combination of like English rock and R&B. And everybody loved it. I didn't really like the experience. I didn't really want to go through that again. Uh-huh. When it came to do the next album, I did the album in L.A., uh, mixed it, and sent it to Chrysalis and got on a plane to Hawaii for a vacation. Whenever you work with John Waite, you need a vacation. <laughs> and... I got a call from Terry Ellis, come back, it's not finished, we need a single. So I came back, I went back into my archives of songs, and I found Every Time I Think of You. Every time I think of you, it always turns out good. Every time I've held you, I thought you understood. which was a song that the same people wrote, Jack Conrad and... Uh, Ray Kennedy. Uh, Ray Kennedy, right. And I brought the girls back in to sing, and uh, there you go. Wow.
Well, so let me let me ask you this because you worked with John a yeah. couple more times. You did that song on the Days of Thunder soundtrack, Deal for Life, and then you also That's did right. the second Bad English album, which was kind of a stiff. Why? How did you go back into the Lions then? <laughs> In the end, I left the project and let somebody else handle John's vocals. I couldn't mm. handle him. Mm. I think I did three quarters of the record. I'm probably listed as the producer, mm-hmm. but it worked out to a certain extent, <laughs> but not okay. the whole way. Yeah, I haven't had too many of these incidents where there's an impasse. Yeah, You know, Eddie Money was one and John Wade was another, and that's about it. Out of 75 or 100 albums, there's only a couple that have ended up in the can like that. Now, Eddie Money was on my list as well. You did the Playing for Keeps album. Um, Trinidad, I think, was a big hit off that. Right. Well, you know, uh, you're bringing up all these acts that I had problems with. That's, we have to get, we have to talk about it, I guess. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I just had a list of things I wanted to talk about because I like them. Well, you know? but, yeah. Eddie wanted to produce the album himself. Hmm. And Bill Graham said no. So Eddie agreed to have me do it. But what he really wanted and what he really thought was, I'll just, I'll just get Ron to do what I want. Hmm. You know, but I I didn't really know how far he would take that. I didn't really know till a year later when Dave Lurick, his guitar player, and I ran into him somewhere. And he said, you know, Eddie used to, like, after you'd have a talk in the control room, we'd be walking out to the studio and Eddie would say, don't do what Ron said, do this. Mm -hmm. Or something like that. And then I would be sitting in the control room going like, what the the fuck's going on here? Then, like, a light bulb went off when he said that. Then it all came back to me. I just wasn't looking there. I wasn't looking for somebody to sabotage his own thing. Yeah. If you don't like what I'm saying or don't agree with what I'm doing, talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. Don't go behind my back like that. And so that's, like, you know, unforgivable as far as I'm concerned. He feels like such a caricature of a of a person that I'm not sure that you could ever like really reach him, but um, was it just this incident, or were you at least excited about some of the music you were making? Or I was excited. I mean, he he's very user friendly music. Yeah, you know, uh, it turned out I really liked too. It was, it was different. You know, Gary Malibur was the drummer. He did a great job on it. Now, let's get the last of these schmucks out of the way. Let's talk about damn Yankees for a minute. I know how you feel about Ted, but back then when you're doing high enough in that first album and everything, is that a pleasant experience or are you overwhelmed by, I mean, politics are so different now. It's such an intense, passionate sport now that it may not have been so much then. How was that experience? Firstly, you you need to know that I'm never overwhelmed. Oh. I, I take it all in stride. Cool. Even though uh, Ted Nugent is not my favorite person in the world. Right. Tommy Shaw is a 
really underrated guitar player. We don't really, really? think of Tommy Shaw as a big guitar hero oh. guy. Uh-huh. We don't think of, you know, we think of him as a second guitar kind of, but he's a lead guitar player and, and he's, got, he's got amazing chops. Hmm. And so I have these two guitar players. We all know about Nugent. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have like a two guitar player band here. You know, I love when they play off each other, right? Nugent mm-hmm. uh, didn't want to stay there to do his parts. He wanted to like come in and do everything and leave, you know? Uh-huh, right. So he left after we cut the tracks. And I, I did a lot of stuff with Tommy that I would have done if Nugent had been there. Interesting. In other words, I had, I had Tommy do way more stuff than... Nugent just came in and did, did a, like a rhythm guitar and a solo, you know. And even that, when Nugent flew in to do his stuff, you know, uh, as a producer, I, I have to be ready with the record button very first mm-hmm. time because often it's the best solo you get, right? Right. We'd sit down and he would have forgot, he forgot like what key the song was in. Oh. He would start stumbling around and, I shit my pants the first time, man. But after a half an hour, he had a great solo. Yeah. So basically, he was like thinking I'm Ted fucking Nugent. Right. I don't. I don't need to rehearse. You know, he went back there. He didn't. He didn't listen to anything. And uh, in the end, it was all okay. It just uh, scared me. You know, freaked me out a little bit that he had done no homework on anything. Yeah. The whole damn Yankees thing ended up being Jack and Tommy's studio album and Ted's road show. Really? When they kind of went on tour. But, you know, Ted's road show annoyed me a lot. Yeah. You, know? you have to understand this is 1989. Right in the middle of the set, Ted would bring out this huge uh, a target of Saddam Hussein oh. and, and pick up a bow and shoot. Saddam mm-hmm. and the, it was, it's just like a Trump rally, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, he'd shoot Saddam and everybody would go nuts, you know. Yeah. Anyway, Ted was really, we called it Ted's world. He's into bow hunting and really music is just a, a sideshow for him. You mentioning that, I wondered if once the success of Damn Yankees really started to take hold, too. if suddenly his focus becomes back, oh, yeah, let me get more involved next time. Sure, I'll be here. Right. You know, but no. no. Wow. Never did. Huh. That's a shame. I, it is. It looks like by my count, you've been a part of about six live albums. Right. Now, obviously, the big one is probably UFO, but there's also... Dave Mason, The Stones, David Johansson, which is great. Night Ranger, Grand Funk. Right. Now, I'm curious because I don't think you're actually at that show, or maybe you are. What's the secret to making a great live album? One of the secrets is recording enough shows so that you can have enough material to go through. Mm. Or making the best of it. In the case of The Grand Funk, it was a one-off show. In the case of UFO, it was a half a dozen shows, I believe. Mm. In the case of Dave Mason, it was two nights at the amphitheater. <laughs> this is an interesting tidbit. Ooh, yeah. Uh, this is, uh, we got to go back to 1976 for this. I was talking with Gary Kelgren, who was the then owner of the record plant, who actually died the, the next year. Ooh, wow. He had hired me to be the chief engineer at the record plant. 
And I get this job to mix the Dave Mason live. And um, Gary made a suggestion that uh, because, you know, they have remote trucks. He could take the, uh, the console and the 24 track off the remote truck and the speakers and stick it on this boat he had hmm. down in the harbor in San Pedro, uh, like a converted minesweeper. And it had like, wow. you know, eight cabins and, you know, yeah. we, anyway, to make a long story short, we ended up taking the band and the girlfriends and the equipment down to Mexico to mix this album with the kind of uh, idea that we could fix things like guitar or vocal things uh, if we needed to. Mm-hmm. We ended up going down to Ensenada and dropping the anchor by this little island called Toda Santos for 10 days and mixed the album. Mm. And uh, in the daytime, we were swimming in the ocean. and nighttime, oh. we, were, we were mixing and partying. You know? <laughs> that is heaven. Oh, my gosh. And in the, in the end, we ended up not fixing anything. <laughs> there was a couple of things we found that we, we could fix, and we went like, you know what? Let's just call it Certified Live, because that's what it was, Certified Live. So that's how that name got there. That's incredible. Okay, let's talk about some of the some of the classics. I mean, let's talk about the Who. Um, I don't know if you are doing like meaningful work on Quadrophenia, or if you're fetching tea for people, or where you stand in in your career at that point. But uh, what was that like? What did you do exactly? Well, why? What makes you say that? Well, I only uh, nothing against you. I just know that I talk to a lot of producers, and sometimes in their early stages of their career. They're listed on have, having worked on an album, but they really were more of like a gopher. You know, they weren't, uh, oh. they were kind of the the errand boy more than actually like doing something. Well, if, if you look on Quadrophenia, you'll see it says chief engineer. Good point. Yeah. Good so point. I, I wasn't just the, I wasn't just the engineer. I was the chief engineer because even Pete did some engineering, you see. Mm. And a couple of the other, one of the other guys, did some sound effects, but nobody recorded the band except me. I did all the recording uh, on Quadrophenia. Awesome. Now, Pete recorded, you know, in those days, uh, early days of synthesizer, 
uh, Pete worked at his house on the synthesizer. There, there wasn't programs on, on a synthesizer in 1973. There was just big dials. You dial the sound in. You couldn't save it. Uh. In fact, it kept drifting. You had to keep keeping it in tune. You had to tune the oscillators. What you had is you had a book that would show you how to get a string sound or how to get a horn sound. And, you, and you'd start there. Then you'd do, do your own sound after that. The problem is, you know, it was gone and you, 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 you couldn't keep it. Uh. So Pete had his own 24-track studio, and he would put a click down, and he would, for Quadrophenia, for the, uh, the demos, he would put a click down and do a rudimentary drum track and bass track and guitar track and do the synthesizer. And then he'd hand me the 24 track and we'd go into the studio and I'd put Keith Moon and John Endless a lot. So they would, Keith would play to a click. Hmm. This was for the songs, this is for the songs that had synthesizer on it, Got which it. is, you know, maybe, maybe half of them. John Entwistle had his own studio at home and he would put horns on. Yeah. Like, like some of the dun, 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 in Quadrophenia. Yeah. He put his horns on uh, at his house, and Pete put the synth on at his house, and I was at the Who's studio doing everything else. It is so interesting. To, I can't believe you just mentioned the horns, because uh, before we were talking, I had Quadrophenia playing in the background, and I was listening to 515, and there's some horns in 515. Yeah. Yes. And I'm a, I love That's horns. Yeah. It, it is? We didn't get so, a horn. Yeah. We didn't get a horn session. That's endless. No way. Way. I'm th- <laughs> I, I, I deserve that. Now, when we talked last time, you had mentioned some of the great voices, and you listed two specifically, of course, Robert Plant and uh, Paul Rogers from Bad Company. Let's hear a physical graffiti story. Do you have one? Sure. You know, yeah. um, I think having done Quadrophenia, the word got around, mm-hmm. and um, I got a call from them to go down to Headley Grange because they wanted to use the mobile truck. So a lot of the key here was the mobile studio that I built. And I guess the feeling was who better to use as an engineer for the mobile studio than the guy that designed and built it. Right. <laughs> Makes sense. You know, yeah. it was like a built a kind of a built in thing, you know? So I go down there and what happens is they're not ready to record. 
John Paul Jones had some personal problems. I never really did, hmm. nor was I told what was going on with that. Hmm. But uh, they sent down these guys called the Paul Rogers Band instead oh. wow. down to Headley Grange. Of course, I knew them. I knew yeah. Mick Ralphs from Mott the Hoople. I knew Paul from Free. And they had these songs. You know, uh, Mick Ralphs had songs like Can't Get Enough of Your Love mm-hmm. that he didn't do with Mott the Hoople because Ian Hunter was the main writer in Mott the Hoople. And Paul had songs like Ready for Love that he had written on piano. And, you know, he had the ballady stuff. And Mick had the rockers. It was It was perfect. So we actually went in to the studio into Headley Grange to do some demos. those songs in 10 days no way so john paul jones doesn't have some kind of personal issue going on and then maybe if that doesn't happen you don't produce bad maybe. company oh maybe my not. gosh wow no i mean it's hard to say what what would have happened in any in any it's that's the way it always happens i've there's been a lot of people that uh, i have talked to about working and i haven't done it for whatever reason i can't remember yeah. right. I, I you know i had meetings with mick jagger and i had meetings with uh billy joel uh mm. super tramp you know and i i don't know whether i don't know whether i couldn't do it or they they found somebody else and all of those times you know if i'm working on something it's a three-month job uh and they call me up and i i'm working on something else how can i you know yeah. Have to turn down bon- I had to turn down Bon Jovi, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, you never know. Crazy. Okay, how are you doing on time? Are you, are you, do you need to go? Are you tired of me? No, I'm, o- I'm okay for a little bit more. Okay. My cat's looking at me like he's hungry. <laughs> yeah, he'll be fine. He, he can wait. Yeah, cats are very self-sufficient. Um, yeah. I don't want to keep you for longer than you want to be, but I have like three or four names on here. I'm going to say them and you tell me who has the best story or the ones you want to talk about. Good. Yeah, good. I got, uh, I got Chicago. I got to be honest. I've never liked that song. Look away. 
but I'm happy for them and for you that it was successful. Right. I got Chicago on here. I got Rex Smith. I got John Wetton, and I got Vince Neal. Who right. do you want to talk about? Who's got the best story? We can talk a little bit about each one. You know, I never thought that Chicago uh, was my cup of tea as far as the producer goes. And I never wanted to do a whole album, and I ended up doing three songs in Chicago 19, and they were all big hits. So uh, that's why I did the next album, because I was like making a lot of money for other producers, right? Why, if I'm going to have singles that, that are going to lead to big album sales, why don't I take advantage of them? And so that's why I did the whole of, of Chicago 21. And I enjoyed those guys. They were professionals. I loved the horn section guys. Uh, again, uh, Look Away and I Don't Want to Live Without Your Love, both Diane Warren songs. I made a, a decision uh, to use Bill Champlin. You know, you have to understand that Peter Cetera had left the band at this point. And um, Jason Sheff, the bass player, was one of the two lead singers in the band at this point. He sounded more, but not exactly like Cetera. But I thought Bill Champlin's voice was better suited for these two songs. Mm, I wondered about that. Jason sang a lot of the songs on the record. I mean, on both of yeah. them that I did. No one questioned it. You know, the band seemed to be okay with it. I don't know if Jason was okay with it or not, but the band seemed okay. And we had a number one hit with Look Away. Yeah. Whether yeah. you liked it or not. <laughs> The other people you talked about were Vince Neil. Yeah, tell me a Vince story. I love the Exposed album I did with him. I think one. it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great good. album. Uh, I had Jack and Tommy write, uh, uh, I thought was a hit called, I think, Change. You Can't Change Me or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm hmm. problem with this album was it came out in 93 and we all know that everybody's head was turned to Seattle in 93. Right. I do know that Exposed did an amazing amount in the rest of the world. It did, did big numbers. I'm sitting here looking at a 
gold album from Japan, a gold disc from 93 from Warner Music Japan. Oh, wow. You know, it just, it was just unfortunate uh, that that, the timing on that. And of course, John Wetton, which happened at the same time period in that same 93, 94, another classic rock kind of record suffered the same, you know, all of this kind of music took a back seat to grunge. Lastly, Rex Smith, Camouflage. Okay, this is, <laughs> there's some good stories here. Really? Oh, now, great. Re- Re- yeah, I'll tell you, because Rex was uh, uh, kind of a heartthrob at the time. Uh-huh. I'm thinking early 80s here. I'm yeah. thinking 83, something like that. And Rex had done some stuff. He had been in Pirates of Penzance with Linda Ronstadt. He was uh, on music videos. This is early in the days for MTV. Uh, he was a, a like a pop star kind of thing. But really, he was, he wanted to be a rocker. So he got me to rock it up. Uh, you know, I put together a band for him that was partially L.A. He brought in Brad Whitford from Aerosmith. Really? He plays on that? Yes. It was a hiatus for Brad. They had broken up for a couple of years, Aerosmith. Uh, we did it at the record plant in Sausalito, and... Right in the middle of the recording, Rex comes up to me and he said, Ron, uh, I've got this gig I, I, I really like to do next week. I said, okay, okay where is it? He says, well, it's in Lima, Peru. Oh. <laughs> I said, well, you can't do it. Uh. You know, we're right in the middle of this. You've got all the studio booked. And I, I said, what's it for? He says, the Miss Universe contest. Because I can make twenty five grand in like one night, and I said, "He said, can I do it?" I said, "If you take me." <laughs> oh, that's great! So we fly down to Lima, Peru. Uh, you know, fly to Miami and then fly to Panama City, Panama, and then fly to Lima. We check in this hotel and we get drunk on these. Pisco Sours, and uh, the gig turns out to be in a bull ring, so it smelled like shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, Bob Barker was no the way. MC, yeah, from uh, Price is Right. There were some hockey players that were the judges from the New York Rangers, and, you know, it was <laughs> wild, man. That is great. The CBS crew down there, I think it was CBS crew had been down there for a couple of days before we got there and they had bought Coke for like $10 a gram or something like that. (laughs) And so everybody was getting wasted. And, um, and I, I must say that, uh, the girls are, there's like a hundred girls. They're all beautiful. I mean, it was like, it was great for a couple of days. So did you party with these girls during the beauty? Well, you couldn't. Well, we did the last, the last night after they all lost except one. Okay. You know, they all had chaperones. They had these, um, each one had a chaperone. But I did get a knock on my door late the night of the concert. We were going to leave the next morning. And I opened the door a crack. And this woman said, Miss Willis? Miss Willis? I said, no, Miss Miss Wells is not here. <laughs> and then I closed, the, I closed the door. And I noticed that Miss Wells is... Sash was across the chair. 
<laughs> right? That said whales on it. And she had seen that. <laughs> you were like, oh, I had no, I didn't know who I was with. Okay, see you later, bye. <laughs> so Rex and I, the next morning we get up and we fly to, uh, from Lima to Panama City to change planes. And we eat something. And by the time we get to Miami, we're both sick as a dog. Oh, no. And we had to, instead of getting on a plane to L.A., we had to spend a night in a hotel at the airport in Miami. Both of us just got just got a room and take turns using the bathroom. You know? Oh, man. Boy, that's closeness. You know Rex Smith in a way few other people do. Yeah, yeah, that, that's <laughs> right. So I do. Funny. Yeah. And so then we went and finished the album, and uh, yeah. an album in the seventies called where do we go from here that I love and camouflage is the only other one that sort of calls back to that vibe, but uh, he just couldn't stay there. They wanted him to sing sooner or later and all these ballads. I I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Last of all, uh, last of all, I want to ask you specifically because you have an eight year old daughter. Is this your first time at, at marriage and family life or is this your second or third or What's going on with you personally? Well, as far as the marriage goes, you know, I never make the same mistake once. Mm. <laughs> gotcha. No, I've, I've never, I've never been married. Okay. Uh, but I'm a single dad. The mom is off somewhere. I don't know where she is. Really? Uh, but I am. Yeah, I'm raising. I don't know. I think she's in Vegas. But um, we don't really have anything to do with her. I'm raising her on my own. Wow. And um, she, so that's where that's at. But she is your is child, the, right? Or did you she, adopt she her is or my, something? Oh, oh, no, no, no. She's my child. There, uh, there's, there, she's uh, 66 years younger than I am. But she's, she's my, my biological child. Yes. Got it. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, what a life. But um, I, did, I did want to mention one more thing. Please. Uh, because last night, uh, I am involved with a group of people uh, have formed a thing called Sausalito Music Partners. They are trying to save the Sausalito record plant. Oh, yes. Good. Not, not from the wrecking ball, but from right now, it's not a studio anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, last night, we had a group of, of investors there and I did a video kind of a Skype presentation from up here 
Uh, and there was some big investors there. Uh, I can't say who they were, okay. but I um, mean, if you think of the biggest Silicon Valley companies, they were there. Got it. So I'm hoping that uh, something will come of that. Somebody with a music background or with musical, that's a music fanatic will step up uh, and because we want to buy the building and refurbish it and put it back uh, as, as a, 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 a great, a great studio that it once was. That's great. And, uh, you know, so I'm hoping that that kind of like comes to pass. Good. Uh, that's excellent. That's a, that's a wonderful final plug. I, I hear you on that okay. and I hope these old studios can be, uh, of use again. They're, they're historic landmarks to some of us. You right. know what I mean? Well, Ron, uh, I, I mean, if you can't tell, you're behind some of the music that matters most to me in my entire life. And it's a humongous honor that you talk to me. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. I had fun. Thanks, John. I've heard talk of blind devotion, lovers through thick and thin. Lives touched with real emotion. Faithful to love. There you have it, Ron Nevison. Guys, every album he worked on deserves its own episode. In fact, hopefully I can get him to come back and do a deep dive with us on one of them. We could do a year's worth of deep dives. I love so many of these stories. I hope that you can just take these and add them to what you already know about some of these great artists. And that story at the end with Rex Smith, just having to share food poisoning and one bathroom with a rock star like that, you're not gonna hear that anywhere else. I want to close it out with another one of my favorite underappreciated pop rock songs of the year that he worked on, Is This Love by Survivor. I love this song. Next week, we're going to talk to the frontman of one of those excellent British shoegazer bands of the late 80s, early 90s. I think if you were paying attention to alternative radio in the 80s and early 90s, you would have remembered these guys. It's a really interesting story. I love them, and I wanted to share them with you. Paul did this episode, of course. We love Paul and the quality he brings to this podcast. Thank you, Paul. You guys know how to find us on Facebook by now. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We put out new episodes every Tuesday. And in fact, this Friday, we're going to be putting out a new deep dive. Please let everyone know, especially Ron, if you like this episode. Let the bands know. Let the fans know. It deserves to be heard.
You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. Just 